If you've been with us through this journey through James, we are coming in for a landing. Uh, We've got this week and next, and uh, then we will have made it through uh, this incredible sermon and all the truth that's contained in it. Today, James, as he's concluding, turns his attention particularly to the weary and his heart for them that they would be restored. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 13, this is what James has to say. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The heart of James for his people. I think there's three things here that we really need to think deeply about, and we'll spend a significant part really on the second thing, and I think you'll understand why. The first thing that James has a heart for is that, that his readers, that his audience, that us as followers of Jesus engaging in this letter would be people who know what it means to worship in all circumstances. It is that whether things are going supremely well or are you find yourself in the midst of incredible challenges, you are living in a posture of dependence upon God himself. So James says it this way, if you're struggling, right, then pray. And if you're cheerful, then praise God. And he picks those two because they're the exact opposites. (laughs) The word struggling actually means suffering at its core. And it's almost always used in the New Testament, specifically in instances where people are suffering because of their gospel witness. Does that make sense? So they're living a particular way or they're actually speaking the gospel truth to people and therefore they're going through hardships or pain. And James says, in essence, press on. He said that in chapter 1, if you remember. But he says, in order for you to press on, you're going to have to be dependent upon God. So pray. Prayer is a posture of dependence upon God. It's a means of certainly catalyzing God to act on our behalf, but also conforming us into His image. To pray is not just to go through a religious routine or ceremony. It's actually to teach our heart to worship. It's a way in which we engage our mind, uh, we use our mind to engage our heart in a life of holistic worship feel like that? Do you find yourself this morning as someone who James would say is suffering? 
because of your choice to live God's way, because of living on the basis of your conviction, you're going through significant hardships. Or maybe life is just filled with hardships right now. James says the path forward is a path of dependence upon God. Maybe you find yourself at the complete other end of the spectrum. The word he uses is cheerful. It could be translated like this, of good courage. Right. In other words, I can conquer the world right now. Uh, a few of us probably are at this point, after two years of COVID and whatever, are feeling fully cheerful. Probably a few of us are, are in that camp, but it's all right. You have those moments where you feel like everything is going right. You're of good cheer is another way to say it. And James says, you better praise God. Why? Because it's in the high moments that you have opportunity to have calamitous responses. It's in the high moments where you feel like in your own move you are doing things just right and the road is paved for glory. And James is reminding us we need to praise God because in our high moments, just like our hard moments, our minds need to be used to train our hearts to depend upon God. But it's God who's sustaining in that moment and it's God who will sustain in the moments to come. So a word from James to us. Whether you find yourself in the lows or the highs or somewhere in between, are you regularly engaging your mind, using your mind to engage your heart to be fully dependent upon God so that you can continue to run this race with perseverance? The second thing that James wants to say, and he turns to it very quickly, is what about those who are sick? What about those who are particularly beaten down in this season of life? And he pauses to talk at length, and we want to pause to talk at some level of depth about this reality. Because what James says for those who are sick is that they should pray for healing. Now, this is challenging to some of our sensibilities in the modern world, and I understand why. However, it is also sometimes these passages of Scriptures used in a particular way that actually rips them out of the context of the letter of James that we've been reading together. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that there is, in fact, as there often is, a happy both-and middle that actually gets at what James is literally talking about here. So let's ask a couple of questions. What does it mean to be sick? The Greek word is athanasis, uh, athanethe, I should say, and it comes from the, the verb athaneo. At its core, it means to be weary. To be weary. To be unable legitimately to stand up. Or maybe to keep going. Does this make sense? Now, if you've been reading James with us all along, you understand this really fits the context of James, doesn't it? These people have gone through difficult times. There's trials. There's temptations. There's all of these things. And it is a wearying reality. However, this same word that means to be weary is used all throughout the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them. To speak of people who are physically sick. 
So, for instance, a famous instance is when Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda. Do you remember this story? And there's a man who's been waiting there for, for years and years and years. To when, Remember the, the, in that day, the, they believed the angel would stir up the waters, and the first one to get in the water would be healed. And he'd been waiting and waiting and waiting, but he couldn't make it in. And Jesus asks him a, a profound question. He says to him, do you want to be well? Right? And we're like, duh. <laughs> of course he wants to be well. And Jesus tells him to get up. And the word that was used of him in terms of him being sick is atheneo. It's the same word. So there's an idea where the sickness that leads to the ability that you're just fully collapsing in, you're not able to go on. It's used throughout the Gospels in that way. So we would be wrong to say that when James says, are you, for those who are sick, to say well, it's only about being weary. Because it's also about being physically sick. And then there's a third thing that often gets left out. But it's pretty powerfully present in this passage of Scripture. Did you catch it? That sick also means to be corrupted by sin. (laughs) We don't like to talk about this stuff, right? Yet James is talking about it a lot in this passage. And it kind of is weird that it's in there. And yet it makes sense if we pause to think about it. But is that the reason there's weariness or physical brokenness in this world is because of the presence of sin. That does not mean that if you're currently experiencing weariness or you are physically ill or have been diagnosed with the disease, that it is directly related to a a particular sin that you've committed. However, it is directly related to the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world. And so whenever you're talking about healing, sin is naturally included in the conversation, even if it's not a direct, you did this, therefore you have this. We know that's not the case because the disciples, remember they asked Jesus pretty famously, Who, did this man sin or did his parents that he ended up like this? And Jesus is like, neither. It's not the point. However, James understands that sometimes part of the restorative process is the confession of sins. Now let's think about the context that we're reading in here that James is writing in. There's lots of recent context opportunities for massive acts of sinfulness on behalf of the people that James is writing to. The rich opposing the poor, slandering with the tongue, or all of these things we've talked about that have some level of culpability in perhaps the experience that fellow journeyers are having. And so I think James, in this section, is actually reaching out to all three groups of people. Saying, if you're weary, you need to pray to be restored. If you're physically sick, you need to pray that your body would be restored. And if you are currently (laughs) corrupted by sin, we understand that's an ongoing earthly thing, but unrepentant sin in the moment, then you need to to stand and, and confess that sin to God and be restored in that way. All three through acts of prayer. So James then gives us a process. What is the process that we engage in if we are sick? And the first thing he says that if you are sick, you should call for the elders of the church. 
So we need to pause and think about this. That is that the onus, and hear me well, is on the sick person. Does this make sense? That is that if you are weary and downtrodden, the onus is on you to seek prayer on your behalf. If you are experiencing physical difficulties or or sickness or or ailments, the onus is on you to stand for it. Why? Because it's, it's your belief in restoration that begins the process. If it's you who have, who have been corrupted by an unrepentant sin, the onus is on you to stand up. That doesn't mean the church doesn't at times give opportunities or seek people out. You've had this experience where someone says, man, it feels like you're going through a really hard season. Can I pray for you? That's great. However, a fully engaged congregation would have the wherewithal and have the courage to put themselves out there and say, this is my personal experience. Will you pray for me? And it says who they're supposed to ask for is the elders. Now, this is the Greek word presbyteros, right? We literally get our translation elder or, or the, the leaders of the church. Here at Hope Alliance, we have elders. We're governed by elders. And so, at its core sense, this idea is the leaders of the church, the official leaders of the church, But again, we have to read this contextually because who is James writing to? Is he writing to an established church that's been there for 50 years that has all of these leaders fully established? Or is he writing to people that are still trying to find their way that have been sent off in the midst of persecution? And I'm going to trip. And of course, the idea is the second one. that, That James is writing to a group of people who don't maybe have fully established leadership in the church. They're off in a new place and in the midst of a new experience. And so there's a second way to understand this that we're talking about, especially in the Jewish context of James. The elders of the Jewish people were sort of the wise sages of the place. That is, the the people who had shown their faithfulness in the journey. Does that make sense? Not that they were physically old, but that they were committed to Christ, or in that day, committed to Yahweh, and that they were there for the journey, and they had experienced things. And so I want to suggest to you that what James is calling us to, if we are weary, if we're corrupted by sin, if we're physically ailing, is to seek out people like that. It does not mean that you have to to look up the church registry and find the elders, though they would certainly be people like that for you to call on. But it could be your community group leader or or a mentor that you have that you know is faithful in their walk and has been journeying with. This is what James is talking about. Faithful sojourners that will pray for you. And then he says something fascinating. He says, and they will anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. This is odd to some of us. Anointing with oil, why do we have to bring that into this? Well, in essence, we don't. (laughs) The oil is symbolic. The oil is symbolic. It's symbolic of the Spirit of God at work in us. And it's symbolic, especially to James, of someone's union to Jesus, who himself was anointed for his death that ultimately led to his resurrection. To be anointed meant to be joined to Jesus. 
In essence, it's a remembrance of your baptism. The same reason that you were baptized. There's nothing magical in it, right? If you get prayed for and you're not anointed with healing, that doesn't mean it's not going to work. However, why wouldn't you want to be marked by Jesus in that moment of weariness or of ailment or sickness or of confessing of sin, to be reminded of the gospel of grace that God has called you to? Nothing magic in it, but it's deeply symbolic. And so what is the outcome then? This is really where we need to just spend a little bit of time being honest with each other. Because James is particularly bold. Did you notice this? And this is deeply challenging for me. Maybe it's not for you, but it's super challenging for me. Right? James says, the prayer of faith will make the one who is sick well. He does not say might. He says will. And this has caused all kinds of consternation throughout thousands of years of church history of people trying to understand what this possibly could mean in light of their personal experience. Right? Because many of us, if not all of us, have, prayed, have been prayed for or have prayed for someone and they were not healed. And what do you do with that? Some people say, well, there wasn't enough faith. And that was the problem. Because it's the prayer of faith that makes the sick person well. And what I want to suggest to you is, that can't be true. Now we've got to go to some other places to make sense of that. But Jesus is constantly healing people who have very little faith. Right? In fact, he says to, the, to one person, hey, if you believe, I'll heal him. And the person's like, listen, I... I've got a little bit of belief. Help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't say, well, come back to me in six months when you have more faith. He heals them, right? The idea isn't levels of faith here. Now listen, I've been part of experiences or part of churches or groups of people who because they believe that this is all about faith healing have excluded people from the process who they deem don't have enough faith to be worthy of praying for someone. How horrible is that reality? Or who have looked at people in a group who have prayed for someone after someone wasn't healed and have said, we didn't have enough faith or they would have been healed. I've literally heard stories of someone at a funeral saying, if you people had enough faith, this person would stand up out of their casket. Friends, can I be crude with you for just a minute? And if you believe this, I'm sorry. That's... That's bananas. That's bonkers. It's not true, right? We look nowhere other than Jesus Himself who boldly prays for an option apart from the cross and is told, quite frankly, no. And the cross isn't just a painful experience. It's a death-giving experience. So if this isn't the case, then what do we make of James boldness. What do we make of James' guarantee here? Because we can't change James' words, even though we would like to, to fit our experience. So we have to make sense of it. What is James actually saying? And I think there's three things. Like we said, there's three things to sickness. So let me ask, let me say it in terms of questions. First question, is James literally saying that someone can be physically healed? And I think the answer is unequivocally yes. 
We know this because James' teacher is who? Jesus. And Jesus spends a good portion of his ministry physically healing people and telling his disciples that they will be able to do the same. And James is one of those people, eventually. James says the prayer of faith will make a sick person well. Jesus, in a very famous moment in Matthew chapter 8, comes to the home of Peter. You remember this story? And Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. And Jesus attends to her. Let's pick up the story there. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove the spirits out with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. The word for sick in this context, athaneo, same word that James uses. But what's fascinating in this rendition, uh, Matthew's Gospel, is that he links this directly to a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. Now many of us are familiar with Isaiah 53. That's the famous passage of the suffering servant that is Jesus, the lamb that was slain for us. The famous words, by his stripes we are healed. And Matthew's saying, in some way, The physical healing that Jesus is doing is provided for ultimately in His atoning work on the cross. That Jesus' work on the cross is not just about getting to heaven someday. It's about the restoration of all things in fullness and that we experience it in what we call an already but not yet way. Does this make sense? We taste it in part, but not in its fullness. We taste physical healing in part, but not yet in its fullness. So what is the Isaiah passage that that Matthew is quoting? This is Isaiah 53. Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Uh, This is, of course, the Old Testament. It's written in Hebrew. But there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that existed in the days of James. It's called the Septuagint. It translated into Greek. And this word suffering that's translated into Greek, is the word, you guessed it, athaneo. It's the same word that's used in Matthew that's used in James. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, then again moving sin into this reality. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We do not have the time or the space to develop the full theology in this moment, but what I would suggest to you is this gives us the basis to understand that based on the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, yes, He saves you from your sins, but it also provides for you what I would call the possibility of physical healing in this earthly life and the assurance of physical healing in the life to come. Does this make sense? The already but not yet kingdom of God. And James knows this. 
And so he's talking about this. And he's saying, if you are sick, call on the atoning healing work of Jesus. And He will heal you. But I think in his mind, will is an already but not yet statement. For certain in the life to come. Possibly in this life now. And friends, we have prayed for people uh, here at Hope, and we've seen people who are physically sick be miraculously healed. We've also prayed for a lot of people, and quite frankly, not seen them be miraculously healed. And that should not stop us from praying. Because at its core, when we pray, what we're doing is exactly how James started this. We're putting ourselves in a position of dependence upon the God who sustains all things. And we're, we're doing, remember, remember we talked about the Lord's Prayer? We said that Dallas Willard said it's like divine negotiation, right? Praying. We're entering into divine negotiation for stuff we really care about. We don't know if it's negotiable or not in God's plans. But because we don't know, we're going to negotiate. And we'll trust that at the end, God's will and His glory is greater than our desires and our momentary glory. A prayer for healing is a prayer of faith because it is a prayer of trusting God in a far greater way than just for physical healing in the moment. But that somehow, even through not healing in the moment, His glory is actually accomplished in the life of this servant. You see this? This is what we're called to. But it's not just about being physically ill, is it? It's about being weary. Prayer of faith will make the one who is sick well. The, the Greek word, word translated the one who is sick is actually a verb, right? probably a participle. And it's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. Do you know what it means? To be weary. It means to be weary or worn down. The other place that it's used is pretty famous. Hebrews chapter 12. Another section where it's talking about sticking with God and Jesus through this difficult journey of life. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to this. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary. There it is. That's the only other place in the New Testament that this word is used. And lose heart. And those three verses sound an awful lot like James, don't they? Listen. At some level, to live for Christ in, in this broken world will lead to seasons of incredible weariness. You are rowing against the current, right? You are running uphill both ways. This is hard. It's challenging. Jesus makes no bones about it. He tells His disciples, if they're willing to listen, this is going to be hard. 
but it's worth it. Because it's the only thing that will give you true freedom and true life. And James, being a disciple of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, is saying the same thing. If you expect this to be all roses, this Christian life, think again. For those who are suffering, they should pray. For those who are weary, they should call for the elders to pray over them. Why? Because the prayer of faith will make the one who is weary well. Now perhaps here is where we actually get at James's particular boldness in being sure. Because remember, he's not making this stuff up. He's using the teaching of Jesus, who quite famously said something like this with just as much certainty. He said, if anyone amongst you is weary, remember this? He should come to me, and I might give him rest. Didn't say that, did he? He said, I will give them rest. Exact same language as James. Why do we not experience that rest? Well, what's the condition of Jesus' call? You've got to come to him. Listen, this is hard truth, and it's hard truth that I've been speaking to my heart, not just to you. Your experience of rest is equal to your willingness to submit to Jesus. He tells you that his yoke is easy and light, and theologically, we believe him, and practically, we are not convinced. (laughs) So we keep doing our thing and carrying our burdens of life. And yet, Jesus speaks with certainty. And so I think James is saying a particular way that you can engage in the rest that Jesus offers is by acknowledging to some trusted fellow journeyers that you're in the throes of a really difficult season. And you need them to pray for you. And James says, the prayer of faith will make the weary one well. How? He says, Jesus will lift them up. And then the third thing is about the corruption of sin. James uses those hard words again. Confess your sins If that isn't hard enough, what does he say? He adds something onto it that makes it nearly impossible. To one another. Whoa. (laughs) Wait a minute. We've just gone too far, Brother James. Right? In my room, at night, in, in the quiet, in silence, by myself, maybe I'll do some confessing. To one another? Yikes. The only way we become a community that can actually engage in that reality is if we become convinced that we're all struggling just like each other. And that we are hearing confession as much as we're sharing confession. Can I say something? If you're only hearing confession, something's wrong. Likewise, if you're only sharing confession, something's out of order. Somehow, In the New Testament's picture of the church, there is enough trust and vulnerability 
Listen, I'm not trying to minimize those and tell you, just jump in, trust blindly. I, no. I'm saying, can we believe as a community enough that we can get there? Somehow, in the New Testament picture of a church, there's enough vulnerability and belief in the shared experience of the Christian faith that we're willing to tap the, person, the shoulder of the person to our right and say, you know what? I'm super weary. And I'm not sure I can keep going. In fact, it feels like I can't even stand up unless somehow Jesus says over me miraculously, pick up your mat and walk. And that somehow in the words and the prayers of the people, we hear the rest of Jesus. Listen, I know, I can't snap my fingers and make that happen. I get it. But if we lean into this together, imagine the power of the faith community that could be present. Whenever we pause to make space to pray for healing, we always make space for confession. In a moment, we're going to give you opportunities to be prayed for, if you so desire. In that time, we're going to give you opportunity to confess. We're not going to ask you to say it out loud because we understand we're not at that place yet. Unless you you happen to go to a person who you super trust and you're willing to do that. We acknowledge that to pray for healing and not pause to consider my current relationship to God is missed opportunity. Jesus, in fact, sometimes when he was asked to heal them, instead said, your sins are forgiven as a means of healing them because he understood There's relationship there. James says, the prayer of faith will make the weary one re-engaged. Will ultimately, but possibly in the already, restore the physically ill one to health. And will, with certainty, restore the one corrupted by sin into full fellowship with the Father. It's a guarantee. Incredible. And then, the last thing. James says, oh, by the way, just in case you're on the fence about this, can I remind you, and I'm putting this in Adam language, prayer works, right? At my core, I try not to be pragmatic, but I'm deeply pragmatic even in my spirituality, right? And so if I become convinced internally that something doesn't work, I stop doing it. And for many of us, that's our relationship with prayer, that we are convinced it doesn't work, or at least it doesn't work how we want it to work, and therefore we're largely disengaged from the process. And James is now pausing to speak to people who he's just said, hey, no matter what circumstance of life, your response should be prayer. And especially if you're going through a difficult time, it should be prayer. He's pausing to address this issue. And he says, the effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Or in some translations, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Those two uh, adjectives are exactly how they sound. Powerful, strength, lots of strength. Effective means it's working on your behalf. 
But there's a condition in that statement too, isn't it? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What on earth does James mean by this? And then, you know, this is the most challenging of all, right? He gives us the example of Elijah, the super famous Old Testament prophet who's like praying for droughts and they happen. And praying for rain and it happens. And he's like, he was just a human, just like you. And we all hate that, don't At least I hate it, right? Like, okay, can you pick some no-name guy we've never heard of and show me how he relates to me, not this guy who was like, hitting grand slam after grand slam for God through the Old Testament. I understand Elijah had his lows too, but what is James saying? Is he saying we have to be that? Some rock star for God? Is that what a righteous person is? Someone who's got all their stuff together? Someone who's super holy, who has all the faith in the world? That's the kind of person whose prayers get answered? Is that what James means? At first glance, it could seem like that. But I think when we do that, we're actually misunderstanding the word righteous. And oh, by the way, in the original language, there's no word for man that's put in there in our translations to make sense of it. It's the prayer of righteousness. is probably a better translation. Or a righteous prayer. But wait a minute, you're still saying that the prayer has to be right, you know? Crafted with just the right words and said with just the right intonation to be righteous and holy. That's how we get into this religious stuff. That's not what James means. The word righteous throughout the New Testament and in James' using of it largely means to have standing. Right? That is to have access or standing with God. And on the basis of the Gospel, those who are in Christ all have equal standing with God. But there's something else that's going on here that's important for us to say. And James has been saying it all throughout this letter. That is that to be righteous, to have standing with God, is not just about a positional reality, but it's about a perspective from that reality. Does this make sense? Is that James is constantly calling us to see the world the way that God sees it and stop seeing it the way that we see it. And so what are the prayers that are ultimately the most powerful and effective? The prayers that come from a worldview that sees the world like God sees it. Not like we see it. That's after the glory of God, not the glory of myself. That is not motivated by escapism, but actually the mission of God. These are super hard to do, right? <laughs> I'm not saying we can get there of our own accord. But this is what it means. To pray with perspective. Or maybe even simply as James has said earlier, to pray always and plan always if the Lord wills. And so you have a powerful and effective prayer of Jesus in the garden that doesn't turn out the way He wants it to. And yet, is answered in the affirmative for the glory of God. See this? Jesus says, take this cup away from me. I do not want the cross. I'm super close to it. Maybe I was okay with it from a distance. Now I'm not. Take it away from me. Like We have to understand the humanity of Jesus. And, but then he says, but, but, but not my will, but your will be done. That is that the perspective switch. Your mission is the ultimate. Your glory is the ultimate. Whatever in this moment will advance those things is the righteous prayer that is powerful 
and effective. How? The same two ways we've talked about prayer here at Hope. That it catalyzes God on behalf of His people. We see that through Scripture. It does. But that it also conforms us into God's will and image. Powerfully and effectively. This is how we pray. To catalyze God and to be conformed. Friends, if you are struggling, pray. If you are full of courage, praise God. If you are sick, physically, or if you're just just weak, not sure you can keep going on, today might be the time to pause and ask the elders to pray for you. Perhaps it's physical sickness or weariness or corruption by sin or some combination of the others. In a moment, we'll give you opportunity for that. In this time, let's begin to prepare our hearts. Can I pray with you?